Good to be together. Uh, good to start out this new year together. The first day of the week uh, um, happened to be also the first day of this new year, 2023, and just a perfectly appropriate time to talk about how to approach the next year, as I'm sure a lot of preachers are doing throughout uh, the world. Uh, it's trying to seize the moment, and today I'm going to talk about living the next year. Uh, four questions and answers that will shape 2023 for you. Did you get a chance, Mary Gail, to pass those out? Okay. I, uh, Mary Gail's got the custom homework for you. Uh, I increased more line space that so you can write more down if you'd like. Uh, but uh, many people approach a new year uh, in different ways. Uh, for some, uh, their only goal is to uh, survive the hangover of what happened last night. Uh, with others, they try to take it a step above that, and they say, well, I want to do things differently. And health clubs, gyms, weight loss programs of all kinds, you will see a flurry of advertisements on social media, on television, because they know a lot of people are wanting to do things different this next year, concerning simply the taking care of their physical selves. And then a step above that, many people decide they want to make resolutions, some do it in a formal sense. Some just write down things. I want to do this differently this year. We're going to kind of approach the new year in the same way, but for us, our resolutions are already set. As believers, we already know what's most important in our lives. Our job is simply to reconnect, to reconnect to the things we already know that are true. Because as Peter talks about in the first epistle that he wrote, Satan walks about as what, Ricardo? He walks about as a roaring lion. I've never done that before in my life. Ask someone to have the answer, and I knew Ricardo would have it. He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he can what? Devour. Devour. So our job is always to be reconnected to what we know is true so that when Satan comes, we are ready. And the beginning of a new year is the time to do that. As you see in this picture on the front, uh, we have a lot of days to live, 365 days to live. Um, Satan never takes a day off. He never takes a weekend off. He's always looking for ways to destroy us or dislodge us. And with people that have been believers for a long time, he can't do that with blatant temptations. He, that rarely works. But he can do it through gradual erosion. Gradual erosion where we forget or we are not holding as close as we need to some very important truths that shape our lives. So that's what we're going to revisit this morning in the form of four questions that are probably the four, more, uh, four most I'm sorry, important questions that anyone could ask about life. And we'll look at the Christian answer to this. And we'll also look at the world's answer to these four important questions and to see how that the Christian answer reigns supreme and also shapes our lives for this coming year and for every year till the time that God calls us home. Here's the first question and the answers. That is, where did I come from? This is the most important question of life because everything flows from it. It's a question of origins. Where did I come from? And it's a question that's always been struggled with throughout time. 
Am I the product of a God's creation? Is the Bible presents in great detail and everything flows from that? Or am I here by accident? That is, cosmic forces billions of years ago converged and brought about the great order that we see here, and that's the only real explanation. <clears throat> well, the world's standpoint is simply there is no answer that anyone could say for sure. The world, and by the world, I mean the world that is looking at life apart from God's revelation or apart from Scripture. There is no answer to our origin. Uh, the best theory that's put out there is what's called the Big Bang Theory, that again, cosmic forces converged, and by explosion, uh, instead of disorder that normally happens with explosions, great order all of a sudden came, order that is beyond anything we can fathom, and that explains our life here on planet Earth. But that didn't happen in any other place or any other planet. Uh, that's why it's called a theory. Uh, there's no proof of that, but it's simply the idea, if you're gonna try to avoid people being created. Basically, the world's view is that anything but creation, they want to explain our existence. Because if you believe there's a God that created us, it changes everything. So when we look at the question and then the answer of where did I come from, the world's answer is we're just here basically by accident or by things outside of our control. We can't explain it. We simply live out this life. But the Christian answer is simply that we are created. We are created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God did what? God created the heavens and the earth. Very first teaching of Scripture is that we are created beings. But I want to look at how some passages in the New Testament build upon that to give implications of being created. Acts chapter 14 and then chapter 17. <clears throat> the significance of both of these places is that the Apostle Paul is preaching to people that do not understand the one true God. And he's preaching sermons that are the core of early Christian preaching where the apostles who were the direct hand-picked ambassadors of Jesus Christ are speaking to people the message of Jesus. When speaking to people that didn't really understand God, the apostles would start with God. And the Apostle Paul does that here in Acts chapter 14 and also Acts chapter 17. And that sets the table for the understanding of the people. Acts chapter 14 verse 15. The people of Lystra and Derbe hear this lesson. Paul says, just after they try sacrificing to Paul as if he's a god, uh, Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? Verse 15, chapter 14. We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Then he says, who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. <clears throat> Verse 16, in the past, he has let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. We'll pause here or just simply stop here. 
to make our observations. First of all, Paul just starts out his sermon by telling them about the one true living God who did what? Made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. The world in which we live is created. Uh, whether we as human beings are created, the animals, or the planet. Then he talks about God has engaged this world. Verse 16, in the past he let nations all go their own way, but he's not left himself without testimony. He talks about the rain, and we saw that yesterday. The beauty of the rain from heaven, crops. He provides food, seasons, fills our heart with joy. That's all the kindness of God, Paul says. So Paul is here making the connection between the fact that there is a God and that he's created us and he's also blessed us so that we might go the direction he wants. Look at chapter 17 now. Chapter 17. Here the Apostle Paul is in another city, the ancient city of Athens, Greece. And he says in this sermon, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built with hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives, to, uh, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations. We'll just pause here. Here we see Paul again addressing this idea that we are created. He talks about the God who made the world and everything in it. And then he says, here's the relationship of the world to this God. This God is the Lord of heaven and earth. In Scripture, God is not just this cosmic being that creates a world and then leaves it alone. He engages the world. He becomes the Lord of heaven and earth. Excuse me. He doesn't need anything from us. Rather, instead, he gives to us. He gives to us, uh, verse 25, life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, for one man, he made all the nations. So the Genesis account of creation is confirmed. That God created Adam, and then Eve was made from Adam, and then every human being comes from Adam and Eve. Well, that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And multiple Scriptures all throughout both the Old and the New Testament reference the fact that we are created. Well, why does that matter? First of all, it's simply the truth of Scripture that as a believer we accept as being true. But it also indicates that we have immense value. It indicates that we are not here by accident. We are not here simply because cosmic forces came together in an explosion and we're just here trying to figure out what life is all about. We have intrinsic value as human beings because God created us. Even though there may be life on other planets, we only find that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. The life that God cares about is on this planet, and this is a life that he has created. And clearly for a purpose. But notice here that value is implied within the idea of creation. God created us to live in this perfect environment called the world. He made our bodies just right to function in this world. 
indicating again a value that God has given. That he purposefully did this. Life has value before birth, during life, at the end of life when we're older and we're not sure what our value is. Life still has value. Simply because God has placed value upon life. And that's especially a truth that's needed to know now. When more and more people struggle with, is their life valuable anymore? And they go through a very difficult emotional times and they struggle with, is it even worth living anymore? <clears throat> the great movie, the, oh, It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart struggles with, is my life really valuable? And in the movie, it's shown that, yes, look at all the people that have been blessed by your life. But he understands his life has value. And being told that we're created tells us we have value because sometimes our feelings will betray us. When people go through great, great periods of depression or when people have left their life that they thought always would be there, or when people get to a certain age where they don't feel like they're doing as much as they used to do. Or when people don't work at a job that maybe they used to have that, gives them, that gave them a lot of sense of worthwhileness and contribution. When people lose those things, sometimes they think, well, maybe it's not worth living anymore. But the value being told that we're created tells us we always have value. Because God created us, and he placed an intrinsic value upon our life. So this question of where did we come from and its answer are extremely important. We have value because God created us. Apart from this, we have no value except what we might place upon somebody or not place upon them. The fact that we're created means everything concerning our worth. Number two. The second question that drives our existence is, why am I here? We first see that we're created, but the question would next come, uh, why? <laughs> what is God doing? What is he looking for in creating human beings that are different from all creation? <clears throat> he makes them in his image. What is God seeking? Well, the world's answer is simply, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know why we're here. We don't know what our purpose is. Now, there's been endless books written about finding purpose. But apart from revelation of Scripture, you're simply inventing your own purpose. Unless you're allowing God to tell you what your purpose is, you're kind of just inventing it. Well, I have value because I'm a nice person, or I have value because I raised these kids, or I have value because I'm really good at my job or I have value because I can speak well, or I have value because I'm really good with technical things. Those things are all good, but they're all self-invented value. Because no one told you this is your purpose, or this is why you're here. You're simply trying to be resourceful and saying, well, I can do some good. Well, a lot of people struggle with that. And they can't find anything good. And when they don't have a sense of being created, they don't have a sense of why they're here, that's when depression again will set in. And oftentimes worse things will come from that simply because there's no sense of purpose to that person's life. It's problematic simply to make up your own reason for living. Some are really good at that. Others are not so good and struggle. Well, from the Christian perspective, you never struggle. 
with what your purpose is here on this earth. Let's look at some text that enforce this thought, that our purpose in life, why we're here, is to seek God, uh, to respect Him, and to obey His mandate for our life. We always know our marching orders. There's never a moment where we don't know what our life is all about. We know why we're here. Look again at Acts 17. This is a text we just looked at. We saw in verse 24 through 26 that we're created, and our origins come from Adam. But notice here that God gave us purpose. Verse 26, again, from one man he made the nations. Then he says that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history <clears throat> and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 27 now, Acts 17, 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Notice here in this text that God puts us in this very orderly, beautiful world, and he wants us to think about why are we here? Because he gave us this natural ability to think or this intelligence within our minds to start searching for, hey, what, what is my existence all about? And that's why there's so many books and, and articles and online blogs and things like that that are always looking for the meaning of life because we were made to search. Animals are never asking, hey, why am I here? Why am I eating at this dish? Why, why am I in this family's house and not that family's house? Animals are never asking that question. They just are looking for food sources and petting sources and security sources. But they're not asking questions. It's human beings that are asking questions about their purpose. God made us that way. Again, it says here in this text, verse 27, God did this, that is, he set our life up the way it is, so we would seek him. God wants us to search. And one reason there are so many religions out there is it's a result of people searching. Now, people don't always find the correct answer, or they're not looking in the right ways, or they end their search too early. But at least people are searching. It's a natural thing of our humanity to ask, why are we here? What's my purpose for living? And everybody at some point asked that. They may not stick with the question long enough, but they ask it. God made us in a way so that we would ask. It says God did this so we'd seek him and then reach out for him. God's second goal is that once we start asking this question, why am I here, that people will start going to places where they might find an answer. And that's why a lot of people go to church for the first time. Because they're interested in what that church might provide as an answer or they're interested in what they might hear. Sometimes they'll read books, they'll do online searches. Because they're reaching out after God, even if they don't really know that's what they're doing. When they're looking for the reason for their existence, they're reaching out for God. But God's goal is that they find Him. And that takes a lot of honesty, integrity. Because when you find God, you find your life rearranged. You find the furniture of your house moved when you come in contact with God because we find out in Scripture that God has a purpose 
and a role for our life, a mandate, if you will, that sometimes will change the things that we're doing. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. We find here is the purpose of life. 12, 13, and 14. The writer says, verse 13, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of every human being. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here we find this purpose. Once you seek God, you reach out for Him and you find Him. Here's what God is going to reveal to you, that your responsibility towards God is to fear Him. That doesn't mean being scared to death of Him. But it's a healthy reverence and respect. And when you run into His revelation, which is the Bible based on the evidence provided, that you go the direction God wants you to go. You fear God and keep his commandments. When he says, don't touch this, don't do that, you don't. Even though it might be a great struggle. When God says, I want you to do this, I want you to treat people this way, I want you to take on these characteristics in your life, you make that your pursuit. Because that is your mandate. That is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Again, the Christian always knows what he or she is supposed to do. That is, please God. Over and above, pleasing their mate, pleasing their boss, pleasing their children, pleasing their friends, God is always supreme. Whatever He wants is always most important. Now we struggle to live up with that. We know our failures. We know our weaknesses. And that's why God's grace is so important. But the blessing of the Christian life is we always know what we're supposed to do. Because God tells us. He's revealed to us, here's what you're to do, and here's what you're not to do. And it's always for our good. So there's never a moment where we wake up and say, I don't know what my life is all about today. We know right away from how we're supposed to drive on the freeway with people that cut us off, to how we're to treat a difficult coworker that we have a difficult time communicating with, to dealing with a spouse that we don't always agree with, or dealing with a family member that's contrary. Uh, whatever the challenge is, Christians always know, this is something I need to do what God wants me to do, as far as the situation, I need to do the right thing. We always know our purpose, to fear God and to keep His commandments. It matters because we know our responsibility. Paul said in Acts 17, he calls all people to repent. We always know our responsibility is to change and to be what God wants. And if we don't, recognize this is why it matters. That is, we have a responsibility to life. We're just going to do whatever we want. We're going to do whatever feels good in the moment. Sometimes that will be the right thing. Oh, it feels good to help this person just fell down in the street. And a lot of times people do the right thing because it 
It feels right. It seems to be the right thing in the moment. But there's also times we don't sense that's our responsibility to help or to do something. We'll decide, hey, I don't have time for this person. Like the priest and the Levite, the person been beaten up on the side of the road, they'll just walk right by. Because they don't feel a compulsion to do what God wants them to do in the situation. <clears throat> and this world is suffering mightily because people are just doing many times what they want to do. Or what feels good in the moment, whether it be to alleviate pain in their emotions and taking in substances that ultimately are harmful to them or pursuing things that are destructive in their life or lying about things to get out of something that they did that was wrong. They'll do what feels like the right thing to do, but it ends up hurting them or their reputation or, or their sense of self-worth. But for the Christian, we always know why we're here. To fear God and to keep His commandments. And always be repenting, turning for the things that we do that are wrong. Number three. Here's the third question and the answer we have to pursue. It's a question of identity. Who am I? We first know that we're created. That's the question of value or origins. Secondly, we know that we're here to serve God, to respect Him, to keep His commandments. But as we refine that a little further, we also find out that simply knowing who we are is very important. Uh, the world's answer, that is, trying to figure out life apart from Scripture, is that, well, you have no real identity. <clears throat> and you're free to create your own. Just be who you want to be, which is basically be who you feel like being at the moment. And we see that struggle on all different levels in our culture today. Even when people struggle with their identity of being male or female. It's a, it's a struggle within some, oneself. Well, I feel this way, or I want to be this way, but I'm, I'm this way already. And people struggle mightily at times with simply who they are as a human being, let alone as a child of God. But the world doesn't really provide an answer. Some will say, well, change your anatomical presence. <laughs> change your anatomy. Uh, change your dress. Change the way you look. Just create the identity you're comfortable with. Well, the problem is, at times through our life, what's comfortable at 8 years old or is going to be different than what's comfortable at 13. Or what's comfortable at 21. Or at 50. We're going to feel different about ourselves throughout life. That's why there needs to be a consistent understanding of who we are. First of all, as humans, and secondly, as children of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, <clears throat> this is revealed about our identity. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God creates us in his own image. That doesn't mean his, our physical presence, but our ability to take on character, to love, to be compassionate, to have a sense of justice. All those things are things that are part of God's character. But he also gives us this physical identity being male and female that will be part of our identity. That even though we struggle with it at times and we maybe don't feel what our identity is, 
God still tells us what it is. Because he knows our emotions are fleeting at times. Those that are male need to know that they're male even though they may not feel like it. Or those that are female need to know that they are female both in their physical structure, but their emotions, even though they may not feel like it at times. God gives us this identity to give us security. When you know who you are as a human being, that gives you security. That doesn't mean you live up to every culture's fashions or what you see on TV or what you see online as far as what you think your identity is supposed to look like. That doesn't mean you have to follow all those stereotypes. But you at least know who you are as God created you. You know your value, you know your worth, and you know what you are as a person. But our identity also matters as children of God. Look how Paul addressed the Corinthians in his first letter. Even though the Corinthians, as we look at their letter, they struggled with everything. The Lord's Supper, the resurrection. Uh, some Christians were taking each other to court. And even though they struggled with all these issues of trying to live the Christian life, notice how Paul described them in verse 2 of his first uh, letter in the first chapter. He says, to the church of God at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, he says, to the church of God at Corinth. He doesn't say, to you miserable people that can't get anything right. He still gives them their identity. He says, you're the church of God. Even though you don't look like it in chapter 7 or chapter 11, you're still the church of God. Paul and the other apostles constantly point Christians to what they're supposed to be and how they're to see themselves because that shapes how they think and how they live. He says, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Sanctified means set apart. We are set apart to God's service. That is our identity. First of all, we're humans, either male or female. But our next and even more important identity is simply we are children of God. They're sanctified, set apart for God. We're not set apart for our jobs. We're not set apart for our family. We're not set apart to be American citizens. We're set apart for God. Sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people. Holy means pure. And the Christian identity is always wrapped around this idea that we are constantly in a state of purification. A lot of times people like to have water purifiers at home. Where all the water that comes in is through their ice maker or through water that comes through the fridge is purified. And it's a great thing to know that the water is the best you can get. Well, in the Christian life, we are to be purified. That is our language that we use with each other, the words that we choose, uh, the things that we uh, want to communicate to others. Those things are to be purified by our Christian identity. Uh, the places we go, the things that we entertain ourselves with, those things are to be filtered by this commitment to purity as God defines it. Our relationships with other people what we choose to do with our money, are all to be purified 
is God's sanctified and holy people. That's our identity. Our identity is children of God who are sanctified and set apart. Everything we do is different because of this commitment to let our lives be shaped by God. But it gives us great security. Even though we struggle with our weaknesses and our failings and we do not do what we know we ought to do. And we, we say things we, and we try to take back words that we wish we had not said. or <clears throat> We wish at times we'd done things differently with our money than what we did do. We're aware of that and we constantly are in the process of doing better next time. And that gives us a sense of security. They were not lost simply going by whatever the trends are, what the fashions are, or what the emotions of the moment are. We're always being brought back to here's what I'm supposed to do. And when I don't do it, I confess that sin. I acknowledge it before God, and if it's between me and someone else, I correct it with them, and then I get right back about the business of serving God. That gives great purpose and value and sense of self-worth, because we always know what we're about. And we're not allowing our emotions to always be tricking us all the time to take us in wrong directions. Number four, as far as questions and answers, where am I going? Again, the world struggles with this answer, where life is headed. Uh, basically, people don't know apart from God's revelation. Just know they drop out when they die. But people get very uncomfortable or unrealistic when they start talking about what happens after you die. Some say, well, you just drop out. That's why you need a bucket list. You've got you to live it up as much as you can because this is all there is. But there's not really much a person can say about what happens after you die, though. Do you really just drop out? Or is there something more that goes on? We see a physical body decaying, returning to dust. God says it would. We see that. But is there something more to us? And we know in Scripture there is. We have a soul. And most people, even if they're not following Scripture, still believe that something happens after that body decomposes. And even people that don't believe in God and don't follow Christ will talk about family members that have died that didn't believe in God or follow Christ either. And they'll talk about them being up in heaven. They'll talk about they'll imagine an imaginary heaven where we'll all see each other one day. He'll be reunited with his doggy or <laughs> uh, reunited with his wife or something like that. And, even though they don't really believe that, they still want to hope that there's something after this life. <clears throat> but apart from some factual evidence of life after this life that was shown by Jesus Christ's resurrection, there is no real answer. But for the Christian, we know what the answer is. The Christian answer to this question, where am I going? That is, what does the future hold after my death, or even what may happen if Christ returns before our death, we know that we will experience resurrection. That one day, whether we're still, being we're still alive or we've died, our soul will be reunited with our body, but it will be a brand new body designed to live in eternity forever. 
and we will face God in judgment. Let's revisit some of these texts we've looked at. Uh, Acts chapter 17. Here's what Paul says after he's talked about God created the world and everything in it. Notice the connection he makes to how we live because of what's going to happen in the future. Verse 28, Acts 17, Paul says in this sermon, For in Him, that is God, in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. There's our identity, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Verse 30 now. Here comes the future. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is our identity. Well, why? Why do we have to change? Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Here Paul says there's a day coming. The older hymns said it this way. There's a great day coming. Where every human being that's ever lived will stand before God in judgment. And give an account of their life. And that's a fearful thought. It's a sobering thought. Because we all know the paper trail that we've left throughout our life. And the day of judgment will quickly turn people away at times in a conversation because it's very uncomfortable to think about. That is, I will have to give an account for my life. But God is very upfront with us about that. That day is coming. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> Paul says again, verse 9, For we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Verse 10, For we must all appear. He's writing to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We may not know tomorrow and what it holds, but we do know the future. One day we're going to die. When the day comes, there will be a great resurrection of all people to either experience the identity of, or the reality of heaven or hell. But before that, there will be a judgment day. We'll stand before God and give an account of our lives. And how do we face that day? John writes to people that have put their faith and trust in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says this. 1 John 4, verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. 
There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John is saying here is that those who have made this commitment to follow Christ, they acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, and they're living as God instructs them. He says in verse 16, we can rely on that love of God. That is, we can rely on what God has done for us so that when we face God in judgment, we don't have to stand there exposed with all of our sin unaddressed. Again, because what God has done for us through His Son, we don't have to fear standing before God one day with all of our sins unaddressed. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. We don't have confidence because of how well we've lived. But we will have confidence based on the person we put our lives in care of. That is Jesus Christ. We put our faith in His sacrifice for our sins. We believe that He is the Son of God, the only answer to this problem of sin. So that even though we will stand before God on the day of judgment with all of our sin, God's Son will intervene and say, but I've forgiven them of all these sins. And our entryway into heaven will not because of it be how good, how good we've lived, but it will be because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So to this question of where am I going, we know we're going to face the God in judgment. We must all appear, Paul said to the Corinthians, before the judgment seat of Christ. But the only way we're going to be ready is to be ready now through Jesus. He prepares us by taking away our sin so that we can be forgiven. And that is the great gift that we have. It's given by God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has answered these four major questions of life. Where did I come from? We're created. Why am I here? To obey God, to respect Him, and to follow His mandate for our life. Who am I? I'm a human being, male or female, created in His image. And I'm a child of God, sanctified and holy. And where am I going? I have an appointment with God one day on the judgment. But I will face that day without fear not because of my own righteousness, not because of how well I've kept God's laws, but I can rely on what God has done for me through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are forgiven of our sins so we can face the future without fear. This is the blessed Christian life we have that allows us to face 2023. Every one of these 365 days that we're going to face can be faced with confidence, with a sense of value, a sense of purpose, a sense of responsibility, and a knowledge that even though our life might be taken on one of these days next year, or this year, even though our life might be taken, we will stand before God because of 
what he's done for us and our faith and trust in that and will be ushered one day into our heavenly home all because of God's work for us. What a blessed life we have. Knowing what life is about. Knowing what the future holds and how we're going to face it. This is our year. We can face with confidence. Gratitude, appreciation, purpose. God has changed everything through His Son. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing the song uh, that Nathaniel selected to encourage us to simply take hold of these truths that we know already. None of the things I talked about today are new. They're all things that have always been true. But we just have to reconnect to them. And the song we're going to sing helps us reconnect personally to what we know is true so that our life will be lived accordingly. If you need to make any kind of decision and you want the help of your brothers and sisters here to pray for you and encourage you in some way, you can let that need be known during this song. We'll pray for you. But if you just know I need to do something on my own and I know what that is, I just need to do it. The song is designed to encourage you to let these truths we talked about today change the way that you live.